0: I was thinking about that song, that last song we sang, that where says, "My heart longs to be with the risen Lord." I was talking to Pastor Farooz, and he was sharing with me that uh, his wife's sister um, they lost their father, and to the Persian culture, dreams are very important, and she she's been praying that God would give her a dream of her father since he passed away, and he was a good Christian brother. And I guess a couple weeks ago she had a dream and she called her sister and she said, you know, I, I saw Daddy. And she said he was dressed in a beautiful suit and he had this huge smile on his face and he had black hair. And he came up to me and he says, you know, all those great things we talked about, all those beautiful places we spoke about, he said, they're all here. And he walked away. Heaven, we long to see the risen Lord. What a beautiful thing, isn't it? We're blessed to be Christians, guys. Pray with me as I pray for the message. Father, I thank you for the Word of God, and I thank you for the promises of Scripture that one day you'll return, one day we'll be with you in heaven. I thank you, Lord, how you've blessed us as a church, and and we are a family, Father, as Frank said. I thank you how how beautiful it is to be a part of the body of Christ. and how You bless each of us, Lord, and in Your own particular way through the truth of Your Word and the fellowship of the saints and the move of Your Spirit. I would ask You, Lord, that You would meet us here this morning, that Your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that You'd prepare us, Father, even now, as, as the Word of God is preached, that You, Lord, would, would enter in. Thank You for this morning, Lord, and the privilege that You've given me to share the Word. Meet us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be back, and thank you, church, for allowing me to to have some time off. Um, My wife and I get to celebrate the 30 years, and that's a big deal. And by the way, we we were talking about what to do, and she was real nervous about doing a cruise, mostly just because of the expense, and so I kind of surprised her and pulled the trigger. I thought, 30 years, man, come on. And I'm so glad I did. We had a wonderful time. Uh, We did a cruise to Alaska, and it was wonderful. And, and I, I didn't know how much we needed the rest, but it was a wonderful time for us to just spend time together, and the Lord blessed it. So, thank you. Well, I want to bring us back. We're back in 1 Timothy, and we'll be in chapter 5 this morning, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And and I, I want to kind of bring you back what 1 Timothy is all about. Uh, Paul wrote Timothy uh, because there were some problems in the church of Ephesus. And if you remember from a number of times that I've spoken in the past is that, Um, Paul, on his first journey through that region, he planted a church in Ephesus and then he left for a while and he was imprisoned. When he came out of prison, he heard there were some problems in the church. He comes back with Timothy and he plants Timothy in the church. Then Paul takes off to Macedonia and then he thinks, You know, I I need to help Timothy. Timothy's a young man, he's really never pastored a church before, and so he says, I'm going to help him understand how to do church. And so chapter 1, he he confirms Timothy's calling. I think Timothy needs to be built up a little bit, so he confirms the call in chapter 1. And then he tells Timothy to fight false doctrine. Chapter 2, he explains the importance of praying for the lost, and and he also talks about the proper role of women within the church. Chapter 3 is all about leadership, and he talks about what it is to be an elder and to be a deacon, and he kind of explains what those qualifications are. Chapter 4, he warns against apostasy, and, that's, and in the latter times, some people are going to fall away from the faith. And now we're in chapter 5, and if you remember last time, I spoke about that the church is a family, and that we're to treat one another with love and respect as family members. And Paul particularly kind of focused in on widows in that particular chapter And so, he was really kind of focusing on this idea of respect, but also the care of a church to financially also care for those in need. And now today, he's also going to talk about love and respect, but particularly for pastors. I mean, how do you treat an elder? What's the church's responsibility for those that God has called to lead in ministry? A little different for me to to do this message for you, because I'm basically explaining to you how you should treat me as a pastor, (laughs) But, hey, praise God for the Word of God, and, and we'll let the Word of God speak. And, and so, basically, this message today is, how should the church treat its pastors? Let's read the text. We'll take it in sections. First, let's read verses 17 and 18. It says, the elders who rule well all to be, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The first thing that we'll see this morning is that the church should honor and care for its pastors. Now, the church is God's design. And the way that God has designed it is He's called certain men to lead and to care for the flock, for the people of the church. And those who are receiving the care from its leaders should honor that man that God has called. I want to share with you a quote from Al Mohler He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and this is what he says about a Christian pastor. He says, the Christian pastor holds the greatest office of human responsibility in all creation. He's called to preach the Word, to teach the truth to God's people, to lead people in worship, to tend to the flock as a caring shepherd, and to mobilize the church for Christian witness and service. The pastor's role also includes the entire complex of administrative and leadership Uh, tasks. Souls are entrusted to His care. Truth is entrusted to His stewardship. And eternal realities hang in the balance. Who can fulfill this job description? Of course, the answer is that no man can fulfill this description on his own. Because a Christian pastor must continually acknowledge his absolute dependence upon the grace and the mercy of God. As Paul said, we are earthen vessels employed for God's glory. He finished with this. He says, on his own, no man is up to the task. But I want to add, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And I firmly believe that God also loves you so much and loves me so much that He will equip me to be able to do the work of ministry for your benefit and for His glory. And Timothy was called as a pastor to pastor this church in Ephesus. And we need to remember, Timothy's not like Paul. Paul was one bold dude. I mean, that guy was willing to go anywhere, face anything. I think Timothy was different. I think Timothy was timid. I think he was kind of shy. It wasn't his nature. He wasn't like Paul. He didn't have that bold kind of dynamic spirit. But, you know, God looks more for faithfulness, I think, than He does for boldness. I think God looks for simple trust more than He does for human strength, and Timothy was definitely that. He was a faithful pastor who simply trusted in the Lord, and and the Lord had called him to this task there in that church. But there were some men in the Ephesian church that were causing problems and were bringing in false doctrine, and they were also known as elders or leaders or pastors in the church. And so, Paul begins here in verse 17. Look at it. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Paul's saying, there are those still in the church, though, who are ruling well. And how should you treat them? He says, you're to treat them with double honor. Now, an elder is the Greek word presbytero, and it basically means a pastor, somebody who's called to lead the church. This idea of an elder originally came from the Jewish synagogue, and it meant those who were to supervise the synagogue. And the same kind of idea here is it's a leader in the church who's to supervise the church, but also a key is to preach and, and to teach the Word of God. And so the first thing on Paul's mind here is the honor honor for that man that God has called. And this idea of double honor means a twofold honor. Now, some people say it means double pay, it doesn't mean that. It would be nice, but it doesn't. It means double honor, a twofold honor. And, And I think really what it means here, what we'll see from the text, it really means respect and also remuneration or financial means to support the pastor. It means both. And so we have to start with the first one, which is respect. Now, the Webster's Dictionary says to show respect is to show a person appreciation or to show them esteem. And the way that God has designed the church is He's called certain men that are qualified into this role to lead, and those who are under His care should show them the respect that He's due. And the reason this is because the pastoral position is a very serious position. It's a position where souls are on the line, and there's a dynamic of spiritual warfare and all these things involved where the pastor is to kind of lead the way to help people understand how to grow closer to Christ and grow in their walk with God it's a very serious work, and it deserves respect, but that respect needs to be confirmed by the work done by the pastor, and, and there he's, that word work where he says "whose work, who work hard at preaching and teaching, it literally means to toil or work hard. And so, the man that's worthy of respect, of double honor, is the man who's willing to work doubly hard at, at understanding the Word of God and, and toil with prayer and time and and seeking the Lord as they studied the Word of God. One Bible commentator that I read, his name is George Knight. This is what he said. He said, the verb, Paul is self-consciously designating the work of these elders as vigorous and laborious work. Honor properly goes to those who work hard in directing the affairs of the church and preaching and teaching. He says, laziness is anathema. Laziness deserves no honor. Either in respect or in pay, double honor goes to those who are called by God and then they work hard and they do their job well. So the pastor, this idea of respect is due, it's due to the pastor that labors, that toils in prayer, that toils over the Word of God, that prays for his congregation and then brings you a real meal. He spent time in the Word and then he presents you meat. Now this idea of respect, Paul it's shared in the scripture in a number of places. I'll share another scripture with you that Paul said in First Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twelve, Paul said this, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them, same word, respect them very highly in love, because of their work live in peace with one another. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you in considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, it says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls for those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, we we know that in the Scriptures, the pastor, there's different words for the pastor. there. They're known as a shepherd, they're known as an elder, Um, they're also known as an overseer. The idea of a shepherd, it emphasizes that feeding responsibility, that feeding of the Word. The term overseer, it emphasizes this idea of a leader and and leading the flock. And this term elder, it emphasizes the maturity of the leader, that he's a mature Christian and, and he seeks God regularly. And we assume that Timothy right here, those ones that that deserve respect, they're the the pastors that are qualified. That's kind of a given in this text. One reason that we had that retirement party, if you remember, for Pastor Neal, 27 years of faithful service in this church, faithfully teaching and preaching the Word of God, 33 years total serving in this church, five years as an associate pastor, 27 as a senior pastor. We wanted to somehow figure out a way to say, Pastor Neal, we love you and we respect you. Good job. Job well done. And so that's one thing. We want to show respect to the pastor. But there's another thing. It's financial provision. The pastor, if they do a good job, they should be supported adequately to support their family so that they can do the work of the ministry. And so what Paul does is he quotes... Two authorities to support this command, to support the pastor. One he quotes is Moses, and the other one who he quotes is Jesus. Moses is from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. If you look at verse 18 again in 1 Timothy, that's from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. It says, "'For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing.'" The idea there is, you know, with wheat, you have to thresh it, you have to stir it around, and so it kind of breaks it apart and you get the kernels. And so they would use an ox to kind of thresh the wheat. And, and he's saying, he don't muzzle that ox because he's working, he's helping you, go ahead and let him eat his full It's like he, he deserves the pay for the work that he does is the idea. The same quotation is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, and I'd like you to go there this morning because he really kind of spells out this idea that a workman, is worthy of his wages, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it'll be verses 7 through 12, and I want to just kind of read this for you. It's really self-explanatory, but I think it's the most clear Scripture that I found that explains this, and it also has that same text in it. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops." And if we've sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap a material thing from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, hey, if we labor to provide you spiritual food don't we have the right to be compensated for that? And in this section, you say, well, yes, clearly. And then he goes on to say, but I didn't take that right. Why did he do that? Understand that these were church plants. These were pagan cultures. And he didn't want to hinder the work. They're their brand. He's a missionary. He's just starting out. And he didn't want to put a burden on them. But he, here he's speaking to Ephesus. This is a planted church. It's an established church. And he's saying, you have a responsibility, church at Ephesus, to care for your pastors. If they do a good job, if they labor and toil, then they're worthy of the wage, is what he's saying. So he says that there. And then in, in the second half, you want to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. He quotes Jesus to kind of bolster up the point. He says, The laborer is worthy of his wages. This is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And this is where Jesus sent out His disciples two by two, if you remember the story. He sends them out to teach and preach the Word of God, and as they would go into a city, they'd come in, and then somebody would take them into their home. And that person that takes them into their home, they're obligated to feed them and to care for them. Let me read that for you. Luke 10, 7 says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. The laborer is worthy of his wages, and don't keep moving from house to house. So Paul says, hey... The labor is worthy of it. He's used two, two dynamic forces, Moses and Jesus, to kind of bolster up this point that, hey, Ephesian church, if a pastor is faithful, if he works hard, then he should be compensated adequately. Well, you would say, well, well, what does that mean, Pastor Rob? I'm going to share with you one commentator. One commentator put it like this. He says, so what's a fair wage that honors a pastor? As a rule of thumb, pastors ought to be paid on the same scale as others in the congregation of the same age education, level of experience, and responsibilities. They should not live above or below their congregation. I think that's a pretty good way to look at this verse. One thing I have to say about this church is you're generous. And I've never felt lack since I've been a part of the ministry here. And I've always felt that I've been loved and cared for by you both in pay, but particularly, I think, by you guys just in terms of the affection that you show me and my family. And I love this church. I couldn't wait to come back. I want to share with you just a story. Many of you don't know, in the, in the, in the beginning of the transition between Pastor Neal and I, it seemed like I experienced suddenly spiritual warfare like I've never experienced it before. It felt like literally hell broke loose, both in my personal life and in the, and in, in the, the ministry. And everything was happening all at once. And I, I made a few little notes. We had major car issues all of a sudden. Our car basically was breaking down. I, I developed a health issue we had some friend issues. Some, we had a pet that got sick and died. My best and closest friend was diagnosed with serious cancer. And on and on I could go. I mean, literally every week it was something new. But right in the middle of that, I don't know who they are. I, I just want to tell you up front, thank you so much. You blessed my family. As a group of people got together, and they ding-dong ditched us. That means they showed up, they rang the doorbell. I opened the door, and there was a basket of goodies on our doorstep. They did that for seven days straight for one whole week, and in that basket, not only were there goodies that my family got to partake up and enjoy, but there was always a Scripture verse, and I can't tell you how every one of those verses, man, it ministered to me at a very difficult time in my life, and I felt the love of the church, and I experienced it in a real, tangible way. Thank you for what you did for my family. It meant a lot. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, I mean, I don't get double honor at my job. I can't speak for your employer. All I can speak is for the church. And what God says, the church's responsibility is that they are to honor and care for its pastors, first thing. Second thing, the church should protect the faithful pastor and discipline the unfaithful pastor. Now, there's always going to be those that disagree with the leadership of the church, But it's the responsibility of the church to protect those faithful pastors within the ministry. Let's read the text. Verses 19 through 21 says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Now, there, there were some corrupt pastors in Ephesus. They, they were teaching false doctrine. But there were also some good pastors. And there were leaders in Ephesus that they were worthy of that double honor that, that Paul spoke about. And there were others, sadly, that, that were doing some things that were not right. They, they were, were fleecing the flock. They were trying to get money from them. They were saying things that weren't true to the Word of God. But there were those that were faithful. And what Paul is saying here is that the church, they have a responsibility and to protect those that are faithful. And the idea is that a church should never receive an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. So what Paul begins this section with is a caution. He's saying, caution, church. And what he's doing here is fighting against Gossip. He's fighting against the stuff that just kind of floats around and say, oh, did you hear that kind of stuff? He's saying be careful because you're you're talking about somebody that God has called into ministry here, somebody who God has called to lead the church. And you want to be very careful before you bring that accusation that you know that it's true. And the idea is this. Next to your life in Christ, it is the character, the integrity of the man your integrity and your character that matters, ma- matters most to people, isn't it? That you're trustworthy, that, that they see that the evidence of Christ in your life, and how much more so for that man that's called to lead the church. And I think what happens sometimes in a church is all kind of things can make people upset. Sometimes you can preach a message, and it goes so directly to the heart, a person can feel convicted, but they get upset because they don't want to repent, but they're mad at the person that brought the message, right? And I think you've heard here, hey, don't shoot the messenger. It's that kind of idea. And so they get upset, and they'll say something negative about the pastor. Maybe there's bitterness of soul or anger or or family problems, and, and for whatever reason, they kind of translate that into the church, and then they say something about somebody in ministry Sometimes it could be the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls. I mean, you never know sometimes what upsets people in the church, and they may bring an offense against an elder or a pastor. And this is why Paul says in verse 19, look at it, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so the focus here is on the elders and the pastors, and he's talking about the faithful ones, those that are faithful in ministry, those that that deserve that double honor. And one commentator put it like this. He says, to put it simply, one of the best ways that you can protect your pastors and elders is to have a deaf ear to accusations. It's that simple. When a man is placed in a spiritual leadership, he has to anticipate hateful, jealous, sinful people will falsely accuse him and try to ruin his ministry. I began to think about this. I mean, think about the Old Testament saints. How many of them had false accusations brought against him? I thought of Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, and actually there was more I mean, think of Joseph, right? He spent years in prison because Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, didn't he? And how about David? He had to flee from Saul because Saul said he was trying to steal the kingdom. He was never trying to do that. And I thought of the seriousness of when you bring an accusation against somebody, you try to harm one of God's men. What did David do when he had Saul dead to rights in the cave? He could have taken his life, but he did not want to touch a hair on the head of God's anointed, did he? Well, Paul is saying, saying, be careful here. God calls men, and I'm not saying, hey, I'm God's anointed, that kind of thing, but I am saying that there's a seriousness that Paul's bringing. Paul's trying to say, be careful, church. If you're going to bring accusations, if you're going to listen to accusations, there better be two or three witnesses. New Testament, Paul himself experienced this, Both in the church in Corinth, also in Galatia. There were these guys roaming around that were very religious. They were called Judaizers. And they were bringing false accusations against Paul, and on and on it goes. And he says, The remedy to false accusations is to give your leaders the same protection that really every one of you deserve, that you won't listen to it. Now, Proverbs 20 19 says, Do not be associated with a gospel. And the idea here goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Deuteronomy 19.15. Let me read that for you. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And in the New Testament, we would go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won back your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two witnesses with you. For by the the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So the idea is this. If you have a friend that's sinned against you, or if there's a pastor that you have an offense against, it's the best thing to do is to go to them in private and say, I've been offended. And if they listen, it says you've won back your brother if they repent. If that doesn't happen, you're to take somebody else with you or two more people with you so that they can witness that they won't repent. If they still won't, then you bring it to the church. Now, Paul had been falsely accused by teachers in Corinth, and this is what he said in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses, two or three witnesses. If the church would simply follow biblical rules, if they would simply follow the Bible, guys, so much grief would be spared. Timothy was called on here to, to protect unsubstantiated lies, gossip about people in ministry. He's saying you protect those faithful pastors. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, what about if it's true? I mean, what about if a pastor sins, if if he's unfaithful? Verse 20. He says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. So, if a leader has fallen into sin and it becomes known that he's practicing sin, then the church has an obligation, the leadership of the church, the elders of the church have, have an obligation to confront that man. And I think there's levels here. I mean, nobody's perfect and I'm far from it. And so, I think there might be, you know, simple offenses that you would, do the, you would do the Matthew 18. You'd go and say, hey, brother, I see an issue in your life, and it can be done in private. But this is a public figure. This is somebody who's in front of the church. And so, if there is a gross sin, then it needs to be exposed to the church and be made public. So, what kind of sin are we talking about? Well, probably the most devastating public sin would be the sin of immorality, and guys, we've had multiple cases of that, haven't we, over, over the past years, particularly recently Bob Coy. I know many of you know about Bob. And what a tragedy. I mean, a vibrant ministry. I remember when I read what happened, I remember it made me really sad, but you know what else happened? It made me a little afraid. I'm thinking, man, if a man of God like him can fall, I mean, who the heck am I? That's what Paul is saying, that should happen. You want it to be exposed to the church so it causes everybody to feel the fear of, wow, if I do something against God, God will expose it. God will bring it to life. And so what Paul does here, he says that he wants to really show the seriousness here. He kind of double packs it in verse 21. Look, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. So Timothy's to be careful to listen to the facts, to be careful to bring an offense against somebody. But if the offense is real, he can't show partiality. Now I'm thinking how tough this is on Timothy. He's kind of a a timid guy, he's a young guy, and and he probably knows some of these leaders in the church. He probably knows their families. And if there's an offense that's real, Paul uses a very strong verb here. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Dia maratuamai, and it means I solemnly charge. This means I command you, Timothy, in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of all the angels. Don't show partiality. He's saying in front of all of heaven, they're watching. You do what's right. Very serious here. You know what? Paul gave that same charge to Timothy about his own life. If you were just to turn the page and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, Timothy, you watch over your leaders. Timothy, you watch over your own life. It's important. You know, I read a story About a well-known pastor, and his name is R. Kent Hughes. He wrote the Disciplines of a Godly Man. If any of you have read that, but he was—he's a a pastor. And when he first started his ministry, somebody brought an accusation that wasn't true against him. Let me read it for you. This is what he said: He said, "When I was in first in ministry, a woman who had recently spent some time in a state mental hospital began attending my college group. She kind of looked deranged, and her hair was disheveled, and her eyes were disengaged. And the poor woman was ill of health." And other than a group meeting, I never had a personal conversation with her. And she began to to stalk our home. She began to drive by slowly at all hours of the night. She began to tell others in the church, Pastor Hughes is going to leave his wife and he's going to marry me. But the worst thing is that some people believed her. I mean, how hurtful, how wicked, how sub-Christian to entertain such a thought. And then he said, but praise God for 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because the elders of the church wouldn't listen because there wasn't two or three witnesses. Because over the past six months, there have been a number of accusations that have been leveled against myself, against Pastor Neil, against this church. And many of them have not been true. And many of them have been hurtful. And I'm just sharing my heart openly as a pastor with you. It's been very difficult for me personally. And I never would believe that it would happen within a church Right now, there's a rumor going around that we're going to try to subvert this as a Calvary chapel and try to make this into a Calvinistic church. It's not true. No desire to do that. The desire is to teach and preach the Word of God only, to be faithful to the text of the Word of God, and that's what we'll do as a church. We have a vision for this church, and it's a simple vision. We want you to know Christ. We want you to know Him personally, intimately. We want you to grow in Christ. We want you to grow in your understanding of the Word of God and your relationship with Him, and we want you to sow Christ to others. That's the goal of the ministry here. That's the goal of my heart and the leadership of this church. Yeah, amen. I want to share with you what was done right. In the the first month of the transition, there was all kinds of stuff flying around, and we were contacted by a couple who wanted to leave the church. But they said, you know, we want to talk to you first. And they were pretty much going out the door. And they sat down with us, Pastor Neal and myself, and they asked us a ton of questions. I think we spoke to them for over an hour. I don't remember exactly how long. And I've never felt like I've been on the hot seat so much in my life. But it was good. And they asked real straight questions, and we gave them real honest answers. And I'll never forget the ending. At the end, they stood up, and they said, you're our pastor. We love you. And they hugged me biblical, right. They serve in our church right now, and I'm grateful. That's the right way to do it, guys. You got a question? Hey, our door is always open here. My door, Pastor Neil's door, any of the pastors or Pastor Ryan, we're willing to talk. We want to talk. And if you have any issue, whether it's doctrinal, theological, or some issue within the church, please come and talk to us. Because Proverbs 12:6 says this, the words of the wicked lie in wait for the blood, but the speech of the upright, it rescues them. Now, you're kind of thinking, well, Pastor Rob, I mean, if you just live an honest life, I mean, nobody's going to bring an accusation, right? Think of Jesus. He lived the perfect life, right? And he was accused and falsely accused, wasn't he? Two things, the church should honor and care for its pastors, and the church should protect the faithful pastor and discipline the unfaithful pastor. The final one, the church should be patient and choose their pastors with wisdom, Now, it's the responsibility of the church to confirm a man's call, but don't act too quickly. It's better to wait and pray and, and see if the Lord is in it. Look at verses 22 through 25. It says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So, Paul says, hey, don't be too hasty. And I think what's happening here is Timothy had to tell some of these false teachers, hey, I'm letting you go. You're out of the church. And so, to fill those positions, I think Timothy would be hey man, we need to fill this position right away, and wouldn't take the time in prayer and waiting and and seeing who was qualified to lead in that area as being an elder of the church. This idea of laying on of hands within the New Testament structure, that means usually somebody that's being ordained for ministry, that's being called into ministry, and it's the leadership of the church recognizing that call, and so they lay hands on that person to, to acknowledge that this is a man called by God. I have a picture in my office of my ordination here. It means a lot to me. It means I understand that the elders of this church, the leaders of this church, and you, the congregation, recognize that I, I fit those qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you say, this is a man called by God to lead in our church. But it's not to be done hastily. If you look at verse 22, he says, because you share the responsibility for the sins of others. What he's saying there is, if you choose somebody too quick and they really do something bad, it's on you as well. That their sin goes all the way back to those who chose them. So, you need to be careful. That's why Paul spells out very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of what a leader. So, it's best what? To pray. It's best to wait on God. It's best to examine the life and and let it become clear. Now, it's really weird what Paul does here. All of a sudden, he just kind of says something in verse 23. It's like it's picked out of midair in his thought, and he drops it in. He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And I was thinking, man, it just seems so out of place with where Paul's going. I I think it's the heart of a father. I think what Paul's thinking here is Timothy's kind of shy. He's having to deal with all these false teachers, trying to find new leaders. I think he's got an upset stomach. I think he's dealing with some heavy stuff, and Paul just thinks, oh, oh, by the way, you know, use a little wine, it'll help your, your indigestion. I mean, they don't have Nexium there, they don't have Tom's, you know, they don't have any of this stuff, right? And, and wine can help and in, in, in aid in digestion. I don't think this is a proof text giving you the right to go out and hammer down wine. <laughs> some people want to use it that way, I don't think it's for that. I think it's Paul, kind of like a dad, telling his son, we don't have any other medication, so mix a little wine with the water, and you know what, it'll help you. And then he kind of jumps right back and he gets right back into the text to talk about, hey, you know what, We're gonna, how, do you wanna, how do you choose leaders? So that's kind of an aside and then he gets right back to it in verses 24 and 25. Let's read that. He says, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them into judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. There are four principles here that are just kind of laid out very quickly, and I'll be fast with this. He says, first, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. That's the first half of verse 24. I think what he's saying is that you can just tell this person is not qualified to lead in the church. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, you look at their life, it does not add up. They're not a leader. It's simple. It's plain. The second one, it says their sins follow after them. I think what he's saying is they look good, but you want to wait. Wait. There's something up, and I can't tell what it is. And, you know, it could be something like bitterness of soul or maybe pride or anger, something that will kind of bubble out as you get to know them and watch their lights await. The third one is, likewise, the deeds that are good are quite evident. That's the first half of 25. I think there are men that are qualified. They've been faithful. They have fruit in their ministry. Those men call them into ministry. And then the fourth one, it says, those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. I think there are some men that you're, they look good, you're just not quite clear yet you want to wait. And then over time, you see the quality and the character of their life, and it becomes evident to all. It can't be concealed, and you say, yes, that man is called into ministry. I want to close, I want to close with uh, something that Chuck Smith wrote about the qualified man, the man that God uses. In his book, The Man That God Uses, this is what Pastor Chuck said. He says, what kind of man does God use? God uses the man who comes to the cross daily, who has no ambitions for himself. God uses the man whose life brings honor and glory to Christ. God is looking for the person who refuses to seek after the applause of men, who, like Jesus, is centered on submission to God's will. He's looking for that person who's willing to present his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I have to ask you, are you that type of man? Are you willing to say like Isaiah said, Lord, here am I, send me? Because the man that God uses is the man that's willing to be used by God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for the clarity of the Scriptures. I thank you, Lord, that you have a heart for, for your people and a heart for those that you've called into leadership to be pastors and elders. And you want both of them to be protected. I thank you that the Scriptures are clear and that, Lord, when we honor you by simply following what the Bible explains, so many problems would be solved. Help us be that church. Let us have that kind of ministry here where we have love and affection for one another, where we have trust in one another, And if there is an offense, Lord, of any kind, that it will be dealt with in a biblical way, a God-honoring way. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.